what would Jesus thinking be like if he were here tonight? How would he approach medicine? Tonight I want to talk to you about the master's methods and particularly the master's thinking process. Dr. Lou Evans was on a short-term missionary trip to Korea. He was there to do some surgery with a surgeon friend of his. They were in a remote village, and his surgeon friend was doing a operation, a stomach operation, actually, on an old peasant woman. Dr. Evans wasn't used to the surroundings. They were doing the surgery in a tent. And it was a very difficult, complicated surgery. The heat was stifling. The odors were oppressive. And this surgeon worked seven hours, seven grueling hours in this very tedious operation. As the operation proceeded, Dr. Evans tells the story of his friend pulling down his mask at the end of the operation, saying, she's going to make it, Lou. She's going to make it. The operation is successful. They sewed her up. And then they went back to the humble office of this missionary physician. And Dr. Evans looks at his friend and he said, you know, back in the States, that's about a $35,000 operation. How much do you get for it out here? With tears filling his eyes, this exhausted medical missionary looked up at Dr. Evans and said, let me tell you a story. About two weeks ago, this woman came into my office and she said, Doc, how much is this operation going to cost? All I have is this old dented copper coin. And that dedicated medical missionary physician reached into the bottom drawer of his desk, pulled out that dented copper coin and held it up and he said, Lou, First, I want to tell you, this is what I get out here, an old dented copper coin. But let me tell you the second thing I get. Most of all, I have the priceless awareness that for seven hours, these hands become the hands of Jesus in healing one of his needy children. For seven hours, I have the priceless awareness. Every time you minister to a patient, physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally, you have the priceless awareness that Christ is working through you to touch one of his needy children. Jesus sees through our eyes as we see their pain. Jesus listens through our ears as we hear their suffering. Jesus speaks through our voice as we give them words of comfort. He loves through our heart and he touches through our hands. That's the reformed thinking of a gospel medical missionary that is radically different than traditional medicine today that says get them into the office as quickly as possible, get them out as quickly as possible so that the bottom line will be profitable. Medical missionaries and men and women who minister in Jesus' name think radically different than traditional conventional medicine today. Every time we meet the needs of another, Every time we unselfishly minister in Jesus' name, every time we kindly serve, every time we go out of ourselves with compassionate concern, we reveal the love of Jesus to people around us. What is the purpose? 
of medical missionary work, as we call it. What is the purpose of the healing ministry of Christ? It is to reveal his love. It's to reveal his grace. It's to reveal his compassion in a broken, hurt, hurting, and, and dying world. How do you view yourself as a medical professional? How do you view yourself? What is your self-image? Do you see yourself as a medical professional only to pay the bills of a very busy, costly practice? What is your self-image? Reformation comes when the perception of our self becomes different. Do you see yourself as having a calling that is as sacred as the gospel minister's calling? Do you see yourself as a medical professional, or do you see yourself as a minister? May I suggest to you tonight, and may I be so bold to suggest, that yours is not a common occupation. You've been called by the master as a visible manifestation of unselfish love in an age of selfishness. Medical missionaries, those doing health ministry, have been as called by God as is the pastor who stands in the desk preaching on a Sabbath morning. Yours is a ministry, and that's a reform thinking. There's a change in the thinking process. Our self-image is that we have been called by the master as a visible manifestation of his unselfish love in an age of selfishness. May I suggest that you've been called by Jesus himself to break down prejudice, that you've been called to soften hard hearts, that you've been called to open closed minds, to minister healing to people with broken spirits and diseased minds, and follow in the footsteps of Jesus, meeting needs everywhere in Jesus' name. I'd like to take you through tonight four case histories in the Gospels. And these four case histories are really four vignettes that show us the reformed thinking of Jesus in his day. When you come to John chapter 1 in verse 38, we have a model that's set out by Jesus. Often in scripture, you have a great deal packed in a small text. Those texts are pregnant with meaning. And in John chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus sees two disciples following him. And he turns to them and he asks a question that becomes incredibly significant. The scripture says that Jesus turned and seeing them following said, what are you seeking? Now I'm going to suggest to you that this question becomes the modus operandi for Jesus' uh, ministry. It becomes the model for Jesus' ministry. Jesus says to them, what are you seeking? In other words, what's in your mind? What's in the deepest recesses of your heart? What are your needs? Where are you hurt? Are you experiencing pain? Jesus always began with another's agenda, never began with his agenda. He was more interested in his needs than he was interested in, more interested in their needs than he was in his needs. Jesus always begins where people are, not where he is, so we can lead them from where they are to where he is. So this powerful question that Jesus asked, what seek ye, is the question becomes the modus operandi of his life. He's always saying, what are you seeking, sir? What are you seeking, ma'am? Um, 
Jesus begins where they are. He's always asking, what's deep down in your heart? Where do you hurt? What pain are you experiencing? He looks at the woman with the issue of blood. What are you seeking? He sees the man by the pool of Bethesda. What are you seeking? He sees the crowds on the hillside of Galilee that are waiting to be fed, 5,000 that are hungry. What are you seeking? He sees Jairus and he asks him about his daughter, what are you seeking? So Jesus always begins with the what seek ye principle. Now John 2, John 3, John 4, and John 5 illustrate the what seek ye principle. And if you're a student of the book of John, you recognize that John 6 is the apex. It's the high point of the book of John because it's there that they want to crown Jesus and make him king. Why? Because of the events that happened in John 2, John 3, John 4, and John 5. Those four vignettes provide a model for Christ's ministry. Let's briefly look at them. In John chapter 2, you have the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee. In the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee, the host runs out of unfermented grape juice. And um, the, incidentally, I can show that to you very easily in scripture, but that's for another day. Um, wedding feast of Cana of Galilee, what really was going on there? There was social embarrassment. How would you feel if your daughter were getting married, you had 200 people from the conference there, all your church members were there, and you run out, ran out of sparkling grape juice and veggie burgers and the conference president was next in line. And the potato salad only had a scoopful left. I mean, how would you really feel? You'd be pretty socially embarrassed if you had 100 guests that couldn't be fed. That's precisely what happened at the wedding feast of Cana of Galilee. And the prime reason for that story is to show us that Jesus cares when people are socially embarrassed. Jesus stepped in and relieved a situation in which there was social embarrassment so that the person wouldn't be red-faced and humiliated before their friends. Jesus said in John chapter two, what seek ye? In John chapter two, we see a Christ who meets our social needs. We proceed from John 2 to John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, the need is not social, it's spiritual. It's rarely interesting that Jesus did not give, suggest that Nicodemus have a hydrotherapy treatment. Jesus did not begin with Nicodemus in anything physical at all. Why? Because that wasn't the point of his need. Nicodemus's need was spiritual. He came to Jesus by night, and Jesus spoke to him directly on spiritual modalities. Nicodemus had a religion that was formal, a religion that was external. He was a Sabbath-keeping, tithe-paying, health-reforming Adventist who was a Pharisee. He was expecting the Lord to come, but his heart was not transformed and changed. And Jesus spoke to him about the new wind that was blowing and the transformation of the heart. Jesus met a spiritual need. Now, when you come to John 4, the need is not spiritual. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. But he didn't approach the woman at the well that way. Jesus didn't say to the woman at the well, you must be born again. Have you ever noticed the contrast between John 3 and John 4? He's a man, Nicodemus, she's a woman, that's pretty obvious. Nicodemus comes by night, she comes by day. Nicodemus is a Jew, she is a Gentile. Nicodemus is well-respected, she's a woman of ill repute. Nicodemus comes seeking for Jesus, she stumbles across Jesus. Jesus approaches Nicodemus from a spiritual standpoint. He doesn't approach the one with the well that way. He says to her, 
he, he senses in the conversation that she's a woman that's a, been a plaything of men. He senses that she is a woman that's emotionally devastated. And so Jesus uses a strategy with the woman at the well that helps to repair the emotional damage that's be done, been done by abuse. Now, when you look at this, it's right or amazing. John chapter 2, Jesus meets a social need. John chapter 3, Jesus meets a spiritual need. John chapter 4, Jesus meets an emotional need. You come to John chapter 5. In 1, he says to people, what are you seeking? What are your needs? In John chapter 2, he meets social needs. John chapter 3, he meets spiritual needs. John chapter 4, he meets emotional needs. John chapter 5, he meets a physical need. And there you have the total needs of humanity in four vignettes in John 2, John chapter 3, John chapter 4, and John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus comes to the man at the pool of Bethesda. Now, the interesting thing about Bethesda is this. Bethesda was the place for the most hopeless people in all of Jerusalem. Bethesda. Beth, of course, always means house of. Bethlehem. Beth, house of, lehem, bread. Beth, seda. Seda is fish. Beth is house of. House of or dwelling place of. Beth, seda. The house of fish, Jesus calls the fishers of men. Bethlehem, the house of bread. Jesus, the bread of life, is born in Bethlehem. Beth, esda. Esda is mercy. Beth is house of. So Jesus comes to the most place of most despicable suffering, and he shows compassion and love and makes it to the house of mercy. That's indeed what our rule is, that every physician's office becomes a Bethesda. It becomes a house of mercy. It becomes a house of hope, where people who have lost hope gain new hope, where people whose courage has danced away like a shadow now have new courage, where people whose joy has gone through their hands like, like sand and slipped away, that our offices become Bethesda's. They become houses of hope, and they become houses of mercy and compassion and love. What do we see in the first four chapters of John? John 2, John 3, John 4, and John 5. We see a Christ who is so selfless that he goes out of himself to meet the needs of others. We see a Christ who is so loving and so compassionate that all he's concerned about is the needs of another. A Christ who, though, invites them to make choice because change comes at the point of choice. And so Jesus says to the man at the pool of Bethesda, do you want to get well? In other words, do you choose to get well? If you have that spark of choice, Jesus says. So choice always and faith are combined. Choice must... It is the choice to believe, the choice to believe I have a better future, the choice to believe that there are possibilities for me that I haven't yet seen. So Jesus elicits from a man that's been there for 38 years whose life has passed him by, he elicits a response of choice, a choice to have a different life. Jesus' method of evangelism, what is it? Find a need and meet it. Jesus touched people at the point of their deepest need. I love Ministry of Healing, page 143. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled among men as one who desired their good. He wasn't a hermit. He didn't move off into some country retreat and let the world be lost while he gathered a few disciples around him to be saved. Jesus plunged himself into the context of human need. He gave his life for the service of mankind. He didn't give his time. He didn't give his attention. He didn't give his money. He simply gave his life. Jesus poured himself out every day like each of you are doing in your offices, like each of you are doing in your medical practices, sometimes exhausted, pouring your life out, ministering to others physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. This is the reform thinking of Jesus that's so dr drastically different 
from a medical work that simply thinks only of a bottom line in profit margins. Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He focused on their needs, not his. He showed his sympathy for them. He was compassionate, ministered to the needs, won their confidence, and then he bade them follow me. You know, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, as we minister to others in their loneliness and heartache, their minds open to eternal realities. As we look at their felt needs, we lead them to ultimate needs. Now, Jesus always ministered to people's felt needs, but in his mind, he was looking to minister to their ultimate needs. There's a difference between a felt need and an ultimate need. A felt need might be a need to quit, no, quit smoking. The person comes to your office, they know that they've been coughing and wheezing, they know that their lungs are congested, and they have that felt need to quit smoking. It might be a felt need to lose weight. It might be a felt need for a happier marriage. It might be a felt need to alleviate pain. So the felt need is the need that the person perceives. It may be a felt need for a cure for their heart disease, a cure for their cancer. So there may be some kind of felt need which they perceive. The felt need is the one a person is interested in satisfying now. But the ultimate need is what human beings need most in the long run. The reform thinking of Jesus does not only deal with their felt need, but it's thinking about their ultimate need. A recognition that every human being will be empty and have a void in their heart and soul unless they sense that reconciliation with God is possible. I was interested in Martin Slegman's statement. He's a former president of the American Psychological Association. In his book, Authentic Happiness, he said this, legions of people in the middle of great wealth are rich but aimless, full of doubt about everything and starving spiritually. That's an interesting statement from the former president of the American Psychological Association. Philip Cushman, another American psychologist, concurs that our prosperous and individualistic society has constructed a self that is fundamentally a disappointment to itself. There is an Australian epidemiologist, Richard Exerley, who sums up the human spiritual dilemma in his book, Well and Good, with these words. Filling up an empty self is a poor substitute for the meaning derived from deep and enduring personal, social, and spiritual attachments. As a result, our society is realizing that it has been running on empty and is seeking to rediscover a deeper spiritual comfort. Specialists in psychology recognize that the materialistic values of life have not satisfied the deeper longings of the soul of men and women in the 21st century. And the reform thinking that will come to a generation of medical missionaries, of physicians and dentists and nurses is this, that if we fail to minister to them spiritually, we essentially have failed to minister to them. That there is a deeper spiritual component in every life and ministering to men and women physically, mentally, and emotionally is not simply enough unless we touch the deeper spiritual void in their life. 
Jesus wasn't content to merely heal the woman with the issue of blood from physical affliction. He longed to evoke a response of faith in her heart. Jesus wasn't content to heal withered arms. He longed to heal withered souls. Jesus wasn't content to merely heal diseased bodies. He longed to heal diseased minds. He wasn't content to heal people externally. He wanted to heal them internally because he knew that if they weren't healed internally, they would not have complete healing. Jesus wasn't content to heal them physically. He wanted to heal them spiritually. Physical healing without spiritual healing is incomplete. Because if you heal the ulcer, but you don't heal the anxiety that led to the ulcer, you're going to see that patient again. If you put a stent in the heart, which maybe needs to be done, I'm sure it does at times, but you do not deal with the marriage problem that exacerbated the stress in that person's life, you will see them again. May I suggest to you that reform thinking in the area of medicine is a thinking that looks at whole persons, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Christ was interested in more, much more than opening blind eyes. He longed for people to see divine realities. Jesus was interested in more, much more than healing deaf ears. He wanted them to hear the voice of God speaking to their heart. Jesus was interested in more, much more than healing withered arms or palsied bodies. He wanted to heal palsied souls. Do we have ulterior motives as we minister physically, mentally, emotionally to people? Sure we do. We long for them to know the Jesus that can give them inner peace. We're willing to help people because they're children of God created in his image. We have no ulterior motive in the sense of personal aggrandizement. We help people because they're created in God's image. But we recognize that without the spiritual, their lives will be incomplete. Des, how do you apply this healing model of Jesus that looks at people physically, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally? How do you apply that to corporate health care in the 21st century? Mark, that's a key question. In fact, it's one that we actually put on the top of our agenda as we talk about what we want to do to bring the Adventist health message and its power through the healing ministry of Christ to the needs of America and health reform. So the question is, does the healing model of Jesus Christ offer something that is a solution to America's health crisis? And I want to start with saying, Yes, but let me tell you the journey that we believe we have to go through to get to that yes. First of all, what Mark was talking about on healing the whole person is absolutely core to the way Jesus behaved. And we are frankly in the situation we are in America today, as I talk to people who are patients out there, they are absolutely tired and worn out on what they call partial medicine. That's medicine that treats you as bones, or heart or other parts but doesn't talk to each other and they always complain about the doctors or the nurse some nobody's talking to each other and when they talk they're not talking to me 
So they talk past me, they talk over me, they talk around me, but nothing happens to me. So you see, my friends, in this world of specialty, subspecialty development of medicine, we have gotten to the place that a doctor's relationship with a patient has become commoditized into a transaction that lasts about 14 minutes on average. That particular process takes away the human relation and the dimension of being able to sense the spirit, being able to communicate with the mind, and being able to treat the body and create a symphony of healing. Otherwise, you have individual solos that are played out as different people come into the room reporting on different parts of the human experience and body. One of the greatest question, things that uh, I've found is asking questions of patients. As I've worked with our doctors and asking questions of patients, one of the questions I love is, I have a habit of praying for my patients. Is there anything specifically that I could pray for for you? Very simple question guarantee you it will bring you a definite answer. Try doing the uh, method we do, which is we pray for our employees and our patients on a um, casting lots basis. We pull five names randomly out of the list of all the names, one for every day of the week, and we pray for them. And we send that name to them two weeks in advance, a letter that says we'll be praying for you. You would not believe the responses we've had on people who said, I didn't know why you sent me this letter. One of them told me, but the day before you prayed for me, my daughter got in a terrible accident and she now lies in a coma and she needs every prayer all of us can give. I didn't know why, now I know. I've had a number of people come and say, the day you sent this letter to me, I was getting ready to go home and call it quits in my marriage. And this changed my life. Start praying for people, you will open up their whole being. You'll open up their whole soul. You know why I know that? It's not only one of the things that I've experienced with questions, but oftentimes I'll walk into a patient's room and say, do you have the spiritual resources? Do you have a pastor to help you through this time? I'll say, no, don't necessarily. Or, yeah, but I haven't seen him in a long time. So, would you like me to be your pastor during this time? Very easy conversation. Very easy question. Another question one of my favorite friends, uh, the chief of our medical staff, asks. Before we finish <clears throat> and talk about your whole he your healing, is there anything you're coping with now that's complicating your healing process? Great question, great open doors, great interaction. There is a slide. I hid where it came from because I doubt you would guess. It's the definition of innovation. It says whole innovation response to the whole consumer mind, body, and spirit. It was done in 2006 by Massachusetts Institute of Technology. They are basically saying holistic solutions are what will solve the problem. It is their particular group that's focusing on senior citizens. It's the age lab group. So when we talk about caring for the whole person, we followed 200 patients through the hospital and their families. 
I didn't want to go through a patient satisfaction study and asking people perception as they left, what did you really enjoy, what did you miss? We actually sent a researcher in the room that we watched every interaction they had. Do you know on average, just getting from the front door to your room is 14 interactions with 12 different departments? It's incredible. That over the process of time, in an average day, you'll have almost 100 interactions with 26 different people in the processes of being cared for. So we have all of this thing happening around us. When you're caring for someone in the hospital, it's one of their top 40 dramas in their life. We engaged the Disney company called Ideas and actually had them follow the patients. We wanted to see what a third party would say. We said, when things really happen right at Florida Hospital, tell us what happens. They follow those 200 patients. They have 20,000 words that they uh, got from actually listening to them talk and then interviews, and we've got it all digitized so we can follow it and use it for our research purposes. They said, when a doctor hits a home run, three things happen. Number one, the patient admires a physician or appreciates a physician who is able to deal with the body competently. They appreciate them immensely. They admire them when they actually engage their mind and answer questions and interact and saying, do you understand this? Here are your options. Would you like to think about that? They adopt them when they touch their spirit and enter into their emotional life. And they begin to say, they treated me like a daughter. She treated me like a brother. He treated me like a father. I could tell that those words, you become a part of their family. Our journey is not to just touch the person, but to get them to become members of the family of God because they are the children of God. Amen. And these children of God in their times of hurting often lose track of who they are. So if I were to answer one question for you, I would tell you simply this. The reason we are going to enter into a time when most medicine will not be able to cope is because we have come to digitize the patient when we really are called to heal the patient. You can have digital pathology, you can have digital, digital radiology, you can have all kinds of digital representations of the patient, but until you look into their eyes, you have not been able to encounter them as Jesus encountered them. <clears throat> and so it is that in this environment, we're hitting the wall on one issue in America that's driving the cost in healthcare reform. One issue, what is it? Chronic disease. Chronic disease, if you take a look at the cost of the Medicare payment in medicine, the medical spend for Medicare, 99% of the medical spend is spent on people with chronic disease. 1% is spent on people who have zero chronic diseases. Take this statistic for your mind. 22% of the people in Medicare have no chronic diseases. They represent 1% of the cost of Medicare. On the other end of the spectrum, 23% of the people have five or more chronic diseases. How much do you think they represented the cost? 68% of the costs come from those posts, 68% of the cost, 99% of the cost in chronic disease. Now, why doesn't digitized medicine really, isn't it able to really confront this issue of caring for chronic disease effectively. Why? Because hospitals were made for episodes of care. Chronic disease is a continuum of care. 
You cannot solve the continuum problem with an episodic solution. Number two, and most important, when you get down to the core of chronic disease, 80 to 90% of chronic disease is dependent upon the patient caring for themselves, right? You have to follow your, what you tell them to do. You have to follow up with changing your diet, changing the way you think, changing your exercise program, changing these aspects of your life. You know what I tell people in the insurance business? You know what that's about? They tell me, well, the patients are non-compliant. No. What the problem is, is that basically we have appealed to their head but we have not motivated and changed their spirit, and people are changed from their spirit. And this is why the, blended, the vision of a blended ministry is so important today, because I believe as we blend physicians and ministers, we have the formula to be able to transform lives. And the problem with chronic disease is it takes life and it dials it down on all dimensions to where you are willing to let your spirit be numbed, your body be ill, and your mind be apathetic. And as a result, you lose the engagement of the spirit of hope. You lose the mental understanding and pursuit of what is the solutions for your life. And you lose the physical stamina to be able to go forward. We are all about igniting people, inspiring people. So if you look at the creation story, you will see in there the pattern for the way humans were made and how God can help you and your practice be able to ignite these people. And I say the most important thing that I teach people today in, in, in their whole idea of health is to take an inspiration break. Because in fact, you are inspired. You are, lived for you are made for inspiration. When God came down and touched Adam and created him, he kissed him into life with the breath of heaven. That's called inspiration. Inspiration does for the human what helium does for a balloon. It makes you rise above the atmosphere in which you live. It makes you create your own internal atmosphere that causes you, no matter who pounds on you, to be able to rise again and come up. The second way you can live, you can survive by respiration. Survival can come by respiration, but it's like putting oxygen into a balloon. It will settle to whatever the environment takes it and usually to the ground. And then the final way is you die by expiration. And if you want to know how expiration works, take and blow a balloon up, put within it all the things you would expire, and then instead of letting the balloon be tied to a knot, let it go and watch it zip around the room and fall limp in the corner. And you realize that there are people you work with who are always expiring over everything you have to say. So you get in the midst of a great moment, and somebody has 15 reasons it won't work, and they just spew expiration all over you. So you're going to deal with people who live by inspiration, people who survive by respiration, and people who die by expiration. And the point is, within your practice, you will know where the soul is. The spirit is somewhere in that process, and it may not be the same place the body is. The body may look more alive than the spirit is. So this is where you become absolutely healers.
because you're able to see holistically the three dimensions of that individual and touch them all and therefore bring healing and hope. And the reason most digitized programs will not work is because they take chronic disease and put a nurse on a telephone line in front of a computer screen reading protocols to somebody and waking them up at a certain time. Did you take your weight? Did you take your medicine? And they really don't want to do it and they won't do it and they won't follow through with it because they need to be re-socialized into an inspiring atmosphere which lifts them up and that cannot happen over the phone with digitized protocols. That happens with church. You're born within. You're joined with people who are on a journey to heaven. And with like-minded hope, you move together towards the kingdom. It's not, not, not an easy move, not one without flaws, but that's the way you move. Now, the next question is, out of the philosophy that we just talked about, out of the question we talked about, does the health and healing ministry of Christ model a solution for America's health today? We were asked that question in 1992, and it helps us prepare for now. 1992, we were uh, invited to make a bid on building the America's Hospital of the Future in the new Disney City of Celebration. In that process, we put forward a claim and the claim was simply this, we haunt this city to be the healthiest city in the world, and we know how to do it because we're the healthiest people in the world. That's what we put on a piece of paper. Pretty bold. We backed it up with a lot of statistics. Many of them were statistics about the Adventist Health Study that all of you have participated in, and you made it possible. So we made it to the last. Last two, after start out with 15 proposals from companies all over the world, from Mayo to Cleveland Clinic to Hopkins, everybody came into this. We came down to the last two. They sent a member of their board from Disney with this question. We understand your philosophy of healing from the healing ministry of Christ in Scripture. What is your philosophy of health? Explain it from Scripture only. Hmm. Interesting. Explain it from Scripture only. We decided we'd go back and look at all the things that we had written, all the things Ellen White had written. I and my team had been working for some months. In fact, personally, my wife and I, Mary Lou, had been working on the creation model for some months, for years in our own lives because I believe that the creation story holds within it the secrets of how God planned the world. And I'm a great believer in understanding how plant things were intended to be, because then when the world was broken, you can go back to the original plan and try to appropriate it back to fix the problems of today. So I sat down with this gentleman and I said, everything you wanna know about Adventists and their health, I believe can be traced to the creation story. I believe that you'll find everything there embedded in the creation story. And as we begin to speak and talk about this creation story, he turned out to be a Jewish gentleman. And when I talked to him quickly about Sabbath, and I've told the group earlier, I used to embed Sabbath deep into the journey of getting acquainted with people. You know how you usually preach your Sabbath about three weeks into the, two weeks into the evangelistic meeting, and you know after you preach that, the hall's going to get smaller and the people are going to get fewer and because you've just given them some very challenging thoughts of truth. 
Now I bring Sabbath right up to front. The reason I bring Sabbath up to the front is because I tell them first and foremost, disease takes the romance out of life. And first and foremost, God is love. And I believe when we understand the secret of life, we will understand that it is love. I believe when we understand the secret of light, we will understand that it is love. The physics of the universe, I believe, is anchored in the character of God. It emanates life. It emanates light. It emanates all of these powerful sources of energy. So it is. I began to talk with him about that, and he was reportedly, according to him, an atheistic Jew. But he began to talk immediately about how his mother kept Sabbath. And how over the course of his years, every time he remembers it's Sabbath, he is warmed by the thoughts of how his mother kept Sabbath. And I knew right there the Lord was working something. And when we came back, he said, you know, these eight principles of health you've talked about, I believe in archetheming. Now, I'd never heard of archetheming. Have you ever heard of archetheming? i never heard of archetheming. Archetheming means you put your beliefs into concrete and stone. You put your beliefs into the building. You design the building so it expresses your beliefs. So I'll show you how the building is designed. Just a moment. There it is. 135-foot tower of the Hospital of the Future at Celebration, Florida. Eight sides on the 135-foot tower because this architect says you've got to take those eight principles and put them in, put them into the building itself. Eight sides of that tower. So when we came back and began to talk about, oops, see if I can get myself back on track here. When we came back, and began to talk about these principles. My team and I have been working on these principles, and we were able to articulate them into the word creation. C, and you have, the, you have a copy of the book. We uh, provided that for you as a gift to your ministry in the, uh, in the packet that you received. So I hope you got a hold of the book. Secondly, as you leave tonight, you'll get a DVD on the one word on Outlook, the O in that, uh, and you'll be able to see how we actually share that with people in small groups, and it might work for you in your practice. So C, choice. The first two letters of this are all about the most powerful parts of your life. Choice is a sense of purpose. We've heard conversations about Daniel. Where did he start? He purposed in his heart. He purposed in his heart. The big problem with America, as Mark has pointed out, we don't have a sense of purpose. Therefore, we don't have a sense of destination. Therefore, we go everywhere hoping to find ourselves somewhere that will be where we should be. We're connected to everybody, but intimate with few or nobody. If you want to read about that, there's a new book that just came out called Alone Together, <laughs> written by the M MIT professor, women, oh, a female professor who deals with the psychology of technology within the internet and interactive smartphone environment. <clears throat> we took these principles, first choice, because in the center of the garden, were the trees. God put them side by side. I never would have done that. Good and evil never would have been side by side in my garden. I would have hid evil way over in the corner. And I would have never called it the tree of, good, the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil. I would have called it the ugly tree of death. <laughs> and I would have put a nasty serpent in there. But you see, God loves freedom in your life so deeply that he allows you to choose. And he allows even the devil to have his day. 
because true love has to have true choice. But you are given the power of being able to choose today the purpose in your life, and when you do, all the small choices will line up. So we explain to them that, and rest. You're an oscillating creature in an oscillating world. As you uh, talk to Dr. Nedley, he'll explain all of these biorhythms as they go up and down. But every time you are able to graph the health of a human on, a, on an electrophysiology monitor, you see the waves represent health and flatline represents death. We teach people so often they're flatlining their life. Meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after appointment in your life. Take a time to have an inspiration break. Take the Sabbath rest principle and put it into your daily life. God put it into your pulse. He took a day off just to be with his children. He let your heart rest. You'll see it oscillating in your mind. The ability to help people understand the power of rest, but rest has three dimensions. The rest in your spirit is relax. You're safe in the arms of Jesus. That's why you can go to sleep. You don't have to sedate yourself. You, you, you can actually go to sleep because you're safe in the arms of Jesus. If people do not have mental rest, they have no peace. And if they don't have spiritual rest, they have no peace. And you can lay down early and find yourself not resting. You can get up early, work hard, and find yourself chasing the wind, as Solomon said. Second thing is the, the mind, the peace of mind that allows your, allows your mind to be at rest. Instead of having 90 things running through your head, wondering what I forgot or what I didn't respond to, or constantly having yourself interrupted by a vibration that comes from your cell phone or some other text that you've got to respond to immediately, you have the ability to put your mind at ease, put your full attention to the patient that you have, and the greatest compliment you can ever give to any person is full attention. And when a doctor talks about me being too busy, I take him to the, to the Luke story where Jesus heals the, the man when he's, when he's feeding the 5,000 and you have all these people in this mash of coming by and you read that and he does a complete explanation of what he's going to do. He looks up to heaven and he prays. He touches the man's tongue with salama and he heals him and you read that in no more than two minutes because he gave him full attention. He took him away from the crowd, gave him full attention. The greatest compliment you can give a person is your full mental attention and your full alignment of your being. Um, the body, the body at rest we often talk about and we often explain the importance of rest and how many hours you need and all of that. I find that we spend too little time on the spiritual driver of rest, which is love. I believe love allows people to rest and this is the beauty of the Sabbath. When I explain it to people, I say, you know, what happens is romance needs to fill your life. You can't let romance be taken out. Let me tell you a story. Ernest, Ernest Rogers. Ernest was sitting in front of the camera. The television was asking him a question. When did you decide to marry this woman, the woman that was sitting beside him? He looked at the camera and said, one night we were at a social event. She was laying things out. She wore a blue dress with, with sequence in it. Then the sequence caught the lights of the evening and it cast a glow upon her cocoa complexion that melted my heart and I had to find inroads into her loveliness. And the camera just did what you just did. Oh my goodness, they just eat it up. And it pulls away. And he's 95 and she is 93 <laughs> when they got married. Featured on the PBS special, Adventists. 
two Adventists, Secrets of Longevity. It's called Go Over 90 and Loving It. Dr. Ernest Rogers and his wife married 93, 95, and he says, I'm going for a healthy 100. That's what he told him. I'm going for it. So what do I say to people? They say, oh, my goodness, at 93, 95, love is in your rearview mirror. It's way behind you. you know, romance, forget it. I said to Ernest Rogers, you got to tell me, how do you keep romance alive at 95? He said, every morning I'm finding a new way to tell my wife I love her. I said, oh, you got to give me some idea of what that means. He said, well, this last morning I put my hand over my eyes and I waited for her until she finally came by and she peeled my fingers off and I began to recite poetry to her. And I said two things. Number one, don't tell my wife. <laughs> Number two, you got Sabbath, brother. You've got it figured out because God is love in person. The Sabbath is love in time. And the church is love in place. You see, in six days, God created life. And on the seventh day, God created love. He took the day off to be with his kids. The first full day of their life, he wrapped them with his presence. And it makes all the difference in the world. And you can preach that all day long because it's the beauty of love and the content of love. That's why the day of love is so vital. That's why the day of love is so important. Because God poured himself into it. Most other religions sanctify a location. God sanctifies time because time is what love is made of. That's the raw material of love. You need time. And so you've got to find love in your life. First, you've got to find a purpose. Second, you've got to find love. Man, those two things preach. Why do I like that in the creation story? Number one, it's biblical. Number two, it traces exactly down to what God is all about. I shared the other day the creation story is all written in poetry. That tells you we were made for romance. God's highlighted by three songs that tell you that God bursts into song at three critical moments. The first time when he says, let us make humans in our image. That is love of a parent. The second time when he wakes Adam up to see Eve, he comes out of surgery and he looks into his eyes. The first surgery, if you're surgeons, you love this part of the story. He takes first surgery, he comes out, he comes out of recovery and he sees this creature in front of him. And he says, whoa, man, that's where we get woman. <laughs> it's in the Hebrew, go look for it. No. <laughs> His second, the second song is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, I will cleave to her. Listen, gentlemen, one of the greatest perpetrations of falsehood in our society is that the men should be macho. The men should be romantic. For the greatest romantic is God himself. He loved with all his heart. Men were made for romance. They were made to give poetry to their wives. The third song is Sabbath. He comes to Sabbath, and Sabbath is a song. Three lines, seven words on each line make up his statement about Sabbath. That's why I always say, six days God created life, seventh day God created love. We are the people of love. It is no wonder that the devil wants to make us expire in church by criticizing one another. That's what he loved. Criticism is the devil's praise. I'm not going to preach. So here we are. Our model of health is derived from the creation story. I told this gentleman 
Our model of health comes from the creation story. Our model of healing comes from the redemption story. God touched the world twice, the first time with health. When that was lost through, hu through human choice, he came back with healing. If you come to our hospital, you'll find that there's two corridors. The front corridor is the street of health. The back corridor is the avenue of healing. That's so that we can serve both populations because you see, God is with you in a covenant relationship, both in sickness and in health. And why should a hospital be the last place you want to go to, the first place you want to leave, and you never want to be there if you're healthy? So we created a hospital where we have 45,000 fitness members, I mean, 4,500 fitness members who come in 1,000 trips a day into our fitness center. We have health all on the front corridor. We have healing on the back corridor. Two touches of God. Why? Create things after God's model, and they will be productive. Amen. And thankfully, thankfully, it's not only a model for God, but more people choose to pay cash in that hospital than any of our other hospitals, over 10% of the people, and therefore it is very, very profitable. I believe we need to give ourselves away where people cannot afford it. I believe where we people can afford it, we need to test our value and make sure it's tops. We are made to be the head and not the tail. And so the next question is, is this is the solution so compelling that it could lead the world? Why do we ask that question? Because of this crisis. In 1876, James White came back and found a failing institution in the, in the Health Reform Institute, and the patient's letter said this on his desk. Your publishing building, your college are all first class, but your health institute and department is third rate. James White said this. It is a disgrace for Seventh-day Adventists to do a second class job in anything. The time has come to bring up this branch of our work so that all our institutions here at Battle Creek shall be number one. By the time they actually dedicated the new building in 1885, the president of the General Conference, Elder Daniel, said this, this institution has grown to be the largest of its kind in the world, and if one seeks some more complete appliances and facilities for treating all manner of diseases and a more intelligent application to them, to the cases in hand, he must seek them on some other planet, for here we have the best that this one has to offer. Ladies and gentlemen, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. If you do something sloppy in Jesus' name, you have done the greatest disgrace to him. That's the greatest heresy. I used to tell my students who are preachers, it is not the person who preaches and says, I don't believe in God that hurts God deeply. It's the person who says, I know God, I believe him, and I will bore you for 30 minutes. Wouldn't you like this forever? No, thank you, I would not. No, thank you, I would not. That's the person who puts the scar on the face of God. It is time for Adventism to step up to frontal leadership for the world. It is time. We will never be persecuted until we lead. Jesus would have never been persecuted unless he had led. You must lead first. You are called to lead. It is time to lead. It is the moment to lead. We have the reason to lead. Our first alert came with this from the uh, NIH news. Over the next few decades, life expectancy for the average American de could decline by as much as five years unless aggressive efforts are made to slow rising rates of obesity. 
the alarm rang in 2009 with this from Robert Wood Johnson commissioned to build a healthier America. For the first time in our history, the United States is raising a generation of children who may live shorter, sicker lives than their parents. We must act now to reverse this trend. More, watch this line, watch this line. More healthcare spending will not address this problem. Why? You can talk about obesity and inactivity. They are huge problems. But that is looking at the speedometer and trying to understand what's wrong with the engine. That's the scorecard. I am far more concerned about babies who are born without love and are named without a father, without a family, and they go out to be born and to be lived knowing they are not loved. They cry like Leah. They rebel like Jacob. They perpetrate the anger of violence. We cannot have enough emergency rooms to handle all those problems. Or they go over into sedating themselves with drugs. A few make it out. A few make it out. For mercy can work in the deepest and darkest situations. I am more concerned about the lonely people, and as we go to Thanksgiving, and if I'm on call at the hospital, the most difficult time is to find somebody who has to have administrative consent to remove the life support because they have no one there beside them, no one to walk through the valley of the shadow with them. Lonely seniors, angry children will drive our nation's health care like nothing else. Boredom will drive obesity. Lack of purpose will drive all of the things that Mark talked about in, in his quotes. You stand at the point of where you can make a difference. So what we did was we took these ideas together to create a vision for our future. And we said, we will take the health design of creation. We will take the healing ministry of Christ. We'll take the history of the Adventist health care and we'll take the leadership that it'll we'll look at the leadership that it'll take to lead the future and we said what about imagining a healthy hundred here we are in the downturn of america's health how about a healthy hundred because americans are expected to live to 78 adventists live to 89 that's halfway to 100 11 more years and you'll be at 100 why not think about a healthy hundred because we have all the ability to pursue it it is a personal dream it's the health equivalent to going to the moon it's what u.s news and world report found all the baby boomers saying when they asked them how long do you want to live they said 92 when they asked the follow-up question why do you only say 92 because they said we'll be in a nursing home after 92 and we'd ask not living so they said if you didn't have to be in a nursing home how would you want how long would you want to live and they said 100 100 is the magic number you hear it all over why are Adventists qualified to leave that? I just finished a book that will be out next week on Eight Secrets of a Healthy Hundred, which tells the story of all the various people, including Ernest that I just talked to you about, uh, Rogers, and all the various people on these eight secrets because our goal is a healthy hundred. Creation is the, are the eight secrets to get to that healthy hundred. But I have found that I can speak to companies who may not want to hear a spiritual or feel like creation may be more of a spiritual approach when I give them a healthy hundred. The mayor has a health symposium for the women directors in his area. They asked me to come speak and said, be a little bit light on the spiritual, would you? 
So I came in and walked in and said, I'll just tell you my story. And I began to tell my story. At the end, they said, could we have your books? This year, they said, don't worry about the spiritual. Just come on. Just come on. So I began to talk with them from that direction. We had the credentials because we, st we were born in health reform. We solved those problems. We reformed America's breakfast. We reformed the nutritional habits of America with the Eden diet. We published the first and largest journal in America for good health. We, act, we were the environmental reformers, smoke-free living. We pioneered smoking cessation, drug and alcohol-free living. All of these things, we pioneered exercise done to music, if you know the history of that one. And we also so have been recognized. So one of the things we're doing today is revealing the secrets of the Blue Zones. It's the places on our planet where people live longer and healthier lives. Blue zone number three is the only one in the United States. And where is it? Let's look at our map. It's Loma Linda, California. Check this out. Loma Linda is located about 60 miles east of Los Angeles and where you'll find the group of Americans who live the longest. It's also where you'll find 9,000 followers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Adventists are Christian. Part of their core belief includes an emphasis on diet and health. No smoking, no drinking, no eating meat or processed foods. 94-year-old Adventist Dr. Ellsworth Wareham can still be found in the operating room. He still does open-heart surgery. He's an amazing guy. For Dr. Wareham, that means a vegan diet, which means no foods that contain meat, milk, or eggs. And he spends up to 10 hours a week working in his garden. I think that if you're old, you should keep away from old people. <laughs> That's great advice. And keep with young people. You see, if I can keep around fellas like you, I'll be invigorated for days from having met you. God bless you. Let's go inside the office. You, you, you've been taking people into an operating room like this since before I was born. Yeah, yeah you're going to be okay. Everything's fine. Graham's done over 12,000 of these operations. Uh, and I'm, I'm a pretty busy surgeon. I'm not even close to that. And if you think about role models in your life, especially for me, he's a heart surgeon, that's him. Take a break from the rigors of daily life to relieve stress. Create a sacred time every week that's just for you. Also, spending time with like-minded people will help you feel supported and loved. Get exercise from low-impact physical activities on a regular basis. This will help you build strong muscles and bones, essential as we all age. Cut back on meat in your diet and add more nuts. This could cut your risk of heart disease in half. Put more plants in your diet. Two or more servings of fruit and vegetables per day can reduce your risk of cancer. And give back. Helping others instills a sense of purpose and can help stave off depression. So you see, we've been recognized. God has brought us to the kingdom for such a time as this. Did you notice the number one thing they recognize that's most unique about Adventists? The Sabbath, a sacred a sanctuary in time. My friends, I love God's idea of love. Live with romance. Live creation healthy. Change the world. Do it today. Let us lead. It will take all of your effort, but it will bless all of your soul.
This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.